0: Dear Father, we thank you that we can come together to study your word. We thank you for these gospels that we are able to uh, learn who you were, both in your infancy and in your ministry. Uh, We pray for understanding this evening as we open up the text. Pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right, I'm going to start by reading. Our first passage from Luke, we ended last week with Mary treasuring all of these things in her heart, everything that happened at the birth of Christ. And uh, we are going to end this evening as well with Mary treasuring Jesus' words in her heart. Uh, So let's start with Luke 2.21. It says, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for her, their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All right. So at this point, we're probably wondering what's going on. This is a lot of Old Testament imagery at the presentation of Jesus Christ. These are some of very few events given to us of Christ's birth. So the few uh, details we have are what were most important to the gospel writer. It's like writing a short story. You don't write anything extra because your page count is limited. So these are important things to understand, and what's important to understand is Jesus' family was a law-abiding family. They were under the law of Moses. They were in the dispensation of law. Jesus was faithful to every aspect of the law which applied to him, beginning even before he was able to make decisions for himself at eight days old. At eight days old, he was circumcised, which is a sign both of Jewishness and subjection to the law. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and it is required by the Mosaic covenant. So when he is circumcised, he is identified with these promises given to Abraham. He is part of that descendant line which can receive these blessings, all of them from land to seed to blessing. In fact, he is the promised seed. And so he has to come under this Abrahamic covenant, just like every other descendant who came before him. The sign was circumcision. This was a sign of Jewishness under the Abrahamic covenant, under the Mosaic law, it became a requirement, not just to Jews, but to any Gentiles who were dwelling in the land together with them. And that has to do with receiving these blessings under the Abrahamic covenant, because the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. It does not depend on the behavior of those who are covenanted to God. So how does God regulate these blessings? They own them unconditionally. It will be given to Israel. But in order for Israel to receive these blessings, to experience these blessings, it had to be regulated by the Mosaic Covenant. And so that's why we see the circumcision taking place under the Mosaic Covenant as well. Because the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant were meant to work together. Those who are faithful to the Mosaic Covenant were in fellowship with God and we blessed by experiencing those blessings under the Abrahamic covenant. So we see that in Leviticus 12, it was uh, required for a woman who bore a son to have her son circumcised on the eighth day. It says, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, when a woman gives birth and bears a male child, she shall be unclean for seven days. As in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So what we see in Luke is Mary and Joseph Joseph being faithful to the Mosaic law. They uh, They are being faithful to the Mosaic law. When they come up 33 days after this, to the temple, they come up for two other law purposes. One is for atonement, and the other is for redemption. In the text, it says that when the days of their purification, according to the laws of Moses, were completed, they came to offer a sacrifice according to what was said of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. This had to do with mary's uh, purity under the law she had to offer a sacrifice to atone and that's detailed in the next verse in leviticus 12 verse 4 then she shall remain in her blood in the blood of her purification for 33 days she shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed when we did genesis we saw how the sin nature was transferred from the parents to the children and this purification has to do with transferring that sin nature to a child born in sin. This will not be a requirement in the millennial kingdom. However, it was for Mary. She needed to offer this sacrifice. That sacrifice in Leviticus 12.6, it says to us is a one-year-old lamb as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So why did Mary bring two turtle doves or two pigeons? In fact, the text doesn't even mention the possibility of there being a one-year-old lamb. And that is because the law makes concession for those who cannot afford a one-year-old lamb. This does not mean it would be uncomfortable to buy a one-year-old lamb. This means it would be impossible to buy a one-year-old lamb. They are that poor. It says, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. She will be ceremonially clean, remaining in fellowship with God under the Mosaic Covenant. And so she brings the sacrifice of abject poverty. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy because prophecy tells us that the root of David would appear when the house of David was in shambles. No longer such a royal line that they look like kings, but when it was as if the stump of David had been taken down to the root. In Amos 9.11, it says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and wall up its breaches, I will also raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. You can't build something up from nothing unless it has been made nothing. The house of David would be made nothing, and it was. Mary and Joseph, both from the house of David, were in abject poverty. As well, in Hebrews 11, 1 it says, "Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit." The previous passage talks about God taking down the house of Judah as a as a, like a tree being chopped down to the stump. The house of David has fallen; it is nothing but a stump. But God is faithful to His promise that there will be a descendant who will be a king in Israel, in fact, the king in Israel. And so from the roots of David, from the dwindling house of David, comes the king of Israel. But it says that they offered sacrifices for their purification. So this is not just Mary, But this is for Jesus as well, because there was a requirement that she redeem him under the law. It says that according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This requirement was made after God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He did so by killing the firstborn son of all of the Egyptians. And when they got out, God told Israel that they are his firstborn son and that all of the firstborn males will be his. He says, Now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, the first offspring of every beast that you own, and the males belong to the Lord. However, there was a concession made, once again, for a mother to redeem her child. This was on the basis that the Levites would become a substitute for these firstborn males. And so a firstborn male could be redeemed by his mother for the price of five shekels in silver. It says in Numbers 18, 15, every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. And the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem as to their redemption price from a month old. Jesus was 40 days old at this point. You shall redeem them by your valuation five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. So Jesus was seven days or 10 days past the age where he could be redeemed. And he was. Mary brought both sacrifices. In poverty, she brought the five shekels to redeem Jesus Christ. And then they have two encounters in the sanctuary. Now this probably happened either in the court of the Gentiles or the court of women because Mary could not go beyond that point, and Mary was present for both of these encounters. The first one was with a man named Simeon, and the next was with a prophetess named Hannah, or Anna in the Greek. Simeon, or Simeon's account rather, is a little longer than Anna's. He gives a blessing first. He identifies the child as the savior of the world, and the glory of Israel. And then he gives Mary a particular uh, word about this child, a prophetic word. So it says, then he told, or uh, this man, Simeon, took him, Jesus, into his arms and blessed him and said, now Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. God had promised Simeon that he would not die until he saw the consolation of Israel the hope, the comforter of Israel, the one who would come and fulfill their national hope. And he can depart now in peace because he knows that when he awakes in the resurrection, there will be peace. He has seen that peace face to face. A messianic psalm, Psalm 72, shows us this expectation that the Jews have. Says, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Now, Solomon wrote this psalm. He is King David's son, but he is speaking of a different king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. Now that language comes right from the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, that talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars staying in their courses so long as God is faithful to Israel. This is the hope of Israel, and Simeon has seen it face to face. He, like many others in the time of Christ, got to see what many of the prophets had longed to see. Daniel went to sleep without ever seeing this promise, but the Lord did tell him that he will wake up at the resurrection. Simeon has seen the resurrection in which he will wake up. Simeon continues, though, and he identifies Jesus Christ as the Savior. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. This noun form of salvation that he uses is only one Hebrew letter off of Jesus' actual name, Yeshua. It adds a silent H at the end. The sound is almost indistinguishable. So perhaps Mary and Joseph wondered, how, do they, how does he know this boy's name? But it's a play on words. He is the salvation of God. And this is related to two different groups, two groups that could not be more distinct before the cross, Gentiles and Israel. He will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And this is because until now they have not received any light of revelation. Revelation has been confined to the people of Israel, the oracles of God to Israel. Now Luke may be the only author in scripture who is not Jewish. This light of revelation has been shed to him as well. Now, it is possible that Luke is a Jew living in a Gentile area, uh, but it is also possible that he may not be a Jew. This would be fulfilled in the very writing of the book of Luke. But it's a little broader than that, because the light is not only the light of revelation. Not only will the Jewish scriptures be opened and available to the Gentile people, but the very source of those revelations will be the very word of God. In Isaiah 49.6, it says, He he says, Is is it too small a thing that you should be my servant, speaking to Israel, to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, Israel had a national purpose that could be summarized by come and see. The world was supposed to see them in a position of blessing from the Lord and desire what they had. But the Messiah was the actual fulfillment of this. Under Solomon, we did see a few foreigners coming into the land of Israel, seeing the blessing that Israel had from the one true God. But the messianic light broke on the horizon when Jesus Christ entered this earth and he became the light to all the nations and he provided salvation all the way to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 60 tells us about that Jewish glory, that Jewish audience who receives this Messiah. Isaiah 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is fulfilled by the words of Simeon. Now, Simeon is going to give a four-part message to Mary as well a message directed directly to her. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now his four-part message here is that there is going to be a new division in Israel, a point of contention that will divide them. And it is going to divide them on the lines of the remnant versus the non-remnant, believing Jews versus those who are not believers. Isaiah eight fourteen to 15 prophesies that this will happen. It says, then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the house of Israel, a stone to strike, and a rock to stumble over. Many Jews are going to stumble over this Messiah. And a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be destroyed for their rejection of the Messiah. And that comes 40 years after the rejection. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. The Messiah came to divide households in Israel. The second part would be a sign to be opposed. Jesus Christ would be rejected, he would not be received by the house of Israel. And she would have to watch this happen. It would be a sword that would pierce her soul. She was present when the Pharisees gave their first rejection of Jesus Christ. Immediately after that episode, people tell Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside waiting for him. And she will be present at the final rejection of Jesus Christ when they crucify him on the cross. This is the sword that would pierce her heart, but it's also going to pierce her soul because she herself, like everyone else in Israel, is going to have to make a decision concerning the Messiah. Do they believe that he is who God says he is, or do they not? This is the hearts that will be revealed by Jesus Christ. Those who are the remnant, those who are believers in the one true God and his Messiah. Jesus Christ would be that point of revelation. After the meeting with Simeon, we have another brief encounter with the prophetess Anna, it says there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a as a widow for uh, a widow to the age of eighty-four. Uh, now she was probably married after twelve years old. Lived with her husband for seven more years, would make her 19. And the translation here isn't great. She lived 84 years after she was widowed. She was probably around 103. 103 might be a conservative estimate for how old this woman was. And this shows God's long-suffering towards her. He promised her as well. And so she lived to a great old age, awaiting this comfort from Israel or for Israel and when she looked at the child she said um, here is the redemption of Jerusalem so when Jesus was presented at the temple for his own redemption the people at the temple saw him and recognized that he was the redemption Jesus Christ the promise of the new covenant that the house of Israel would be united all twelve tribes So you need all 12 tribes to do that. All right, moving into our Matthew section, Matthew 2, 1 through 22. Uh, This is quite a bit different than the childhood narratives of Jesus in Luke. Uh, And we go to three different locations. So this we're going to follow a bit of a geographical pattern. First, in Bethlehem, we have a visit by the Magi. Now, the Magi have not been mentioned anywhere in the New Testament yet. Granted, we are pretty early on in the New Testament. They don't appear again either. So we have to do a little bit of footwork to find out who these were. Now, kings is a very bad translation for what these gentlemen were. They were not kings by any means, but rather it is simply the Greek word for the wise men who were uh, Aramaic, I think it's Hama or something like that. Anyways, this is what Daniel was. He was a wise man, a Magi in Babylon. In Daniel 2.48, we see that he was actually made head of all the Magi. It says, then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And the chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. These wise men from the east were probably the descendants of this tradition under Daniel. This is probably how they knew to come looking for the Messiah at this point as well, because they had the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel is one of the only books written outside of the land of Israel. And as the chief of all these wise men, they would have saved a copy of his book. They would have studied it. He was their own prophet as well as a prophet of Israel. Are things that are worthy of being worshipped. But in Daniel 9.25, we actually get a timeline. The Babylonian wise men knew when to look for this mag- uh, for this Messiah says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even to times of distress. Now, we have records of Artaxerxes and Cyrus issuing these uh, commands to restore uh, the temple to restore the city of Jerusalem. And guess what? So did the Babylonians. They as well had access to this history. And when they watched 49 years take place from the issuing of a decree by Artaxerxes in 457 BC, uh, giving Ezra permission to rebuild Jerusalem until the project's completion in 408 BC, They now have a test case for how long this seven weeks actually means, and it is seven weeks of years. Now this makes perfect sense in Hebrew, the word for week and the word for seven being essentially the same. It is seven sets of seven. Seven sets of seven by what denomination? By years. And so we have 49 years, and then they are told there will be 62 more sets of these seven years. And that is going to bring them to 27 A.D. And so around, the, around 4 B.C., they might start looking for that Messiah, 30 years before he would actually be presented in fulfillment of that prophecy by Daniel. Daniel 9.26 says, Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off for the Messiah the Messiah of Daniel. Now then you might ask the question, how did they know to look for the Messiah by the sign of a star? Well, we don't have records of very many non-Jewish prophets, but here we do have one, the prophet Balaam. He was from the area of Pethor, which is in northern Mesopotamia, and Babylon is part of that Mesopotamian uh, belt. Given the almost 1,000 years between Balaam and the arrival of Christ, actually it's more like 1,400 years, there was plenty of time for this prophecy to make its way into Babylon. In fact, we actually have a, uh, we have a tablet from Babylon on which this prophecy was written, even though it's about three or 400 miles from where it was probably spoken. So we know that in Babylon, they did have possession of this prophecy. So in Numbers 24, 17, it's recorded that I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. Now, this part is uh, passed to us. Now, they had just these two prophecies, but... The Jews had an entire testament of prophecies, 39 books. Actually, I think it's 27 by the Jewish reckoning because they don't. No, it's 29, 30. Anyways, we split our books in half. They don't split theirs in half. Um, So there were fewer Old Testament books, but it's still the same books. And so for all of the prophecies that the Jews had, they were not looking for this Messiah to come. They had the prophecy of Balaam. They had the prophecy of Daniel. They also had the prophecy of Micah, saying that he would be born in Bethlehem. And King Herod knows to ask the chief priests and the scribes where the Messiah is supposed to be born. Now notice, he doesn't know off the top of his head. And unless there is a reason to take something figuratively, we do not. Here we have reason to take this figuratively. In fact, we have two good reasons. You could break it up into more than that, but basically two good reasons. One is here, the text itself. This star is not referred to like any other star. The Magi call it his star, referring to the Messiah. It is not just a star, a star designating the Messiah, but it is his star. There is something possessive about this, and it is actually much more like the Messiah than simply possessed by the Messiah. Moreover, this star moves. It went forth from them. It came to Bethlehem and it stood over the place where the child was. Now, let's be honest. If a star came and stood over your house, it would get pretty hot, to say the least. This was not a real star. Rather, this is the sign of the Son of Man. The sign of the Son of Man that Matthew is going to talk about again using the words of Christ in Matthew 24. This is the sign that will appear at the end of the tribulation sign or tribulation period when the earth has been thrown into darkness by the last bold judgments. And so in the darkness, a light will appear, the sign of the Son of Man. And it is his power and glory that will be seen, the Shekinah glory this star that hovered over uh, the house where jesus was staying that directed the magi there was the same shekinah glory that led the shepherds to jesus on the night of his birth and it's the same shekinah glory that will indicate his second coming as well to tell the whole world jews and gentiles that the messiah of israel has returned to rescue israel Now, these magi bring three different kinds of gifts. And because there were three gifts, we often say there were only three magi. There were enough magi to throw all of Jerusalem into a stir when they arrived. There were probably quite a few of them, but they brought three different kinds of gifts. These gifts were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a symbol of kingship or royalty. Frankincense used in the temples is a uh, symbol of deity, and myrrh is a symbol of both sacrifice and death. In fact, this is the fragrance used to embalm Jesus in Matthew 19, or in uh, John 19 when he is taken off the cross and placed in the uh, burial cave of a rich man. He is. Adorned with this expensive uh, fragrance, do next, which is to go sojourn in the land of Egypt for a, at least a year, if not two. Now, they would need money to do this, and God provides lavishly. So, that brings us here to Egypt. Now, we might ask, why did he have to go down to Egypt? The text is pretty clear about this. When the Magi did not return to tell Herod that they had found the child, Herod gave out an edict to kill all of the children under two years old in Judea. So the angel prepared Joseph and his family to escape this edict and sent them down to Egypt. Here we have a quote by Augustus about Herod and Herod's bloodlust. It says, When Augustus heard that Herod, king of the Jews, had ordered all the boys of Syria under the age of two years to be put to death and that the king's son was among those killed, he said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. See, Herod was a nominal convert to Judaism, and so did not eat pork. So he did not kill pigs, but he did kill his own children. Now this is a play on words as well, because the Greek word for pig is hus, and the Greek word for son is huios. So these are just two letters off. It's also probable that Herod or that uh, Caesar Augustus is conflating two stories here. Herod's sons were much older than two years old at this point. He killed three of them. But he killed them because they were conspiring with Miriamne, his favorite wife, to steal his... They come back after the same angel who told them to go to Egypt comes back and tells them that it is safe to return. But instead of returning to Bethlehem, they go up to Nazareth, quite a bit... Longer of a journey, we might wonder, why do they go to Nazareth, uh, which might be probably politely called the armpit of Jerusalem at, or of uh, Israel at that time. why do they choose to live there instead of Bethlehem? Well, they caused quite a stir in Bethlehem last time they were there. And although Herod is now dead, his son Archelaus has proven to be no less of a deadly leader. In fact, at one time he killed 3,000 people in the temple. He is the ruler of Judea and Samaria at this time, which is under this dashed line here. And so they go just beyond it to Galilee, where Archelaus' brother, Herod Antipas, is ruler. And he was a bit more peaceful than his brother Archelaus. And so they go to Galilee, where they are going to be safe. And the text here says that this fulfills what is spoken of by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I could be cruel and send you home and say your homework is to find out which prophet said this. The short answer is no prophet ever said this. Matthew is not misquoting any prophet, though. He is a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish audience, and so he uses a very Jewish form of quotation. In fact, they have four different kinds of quotation that are very well known to Jewish Uh, writers and those who read Jewish literature in the first century. This is a literal plus literal quotation, meaning that the prophecy was a literal prophecy intended to be understood as a prophecy, and it was fulfilled literally. In fact, all prophecy that is given literally is fulfilled. This image that has come before. An example of that literal plus literal is that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. This was given as a prophecy and it was fulfilled literally as a prophecy. An example of literal plus typical we see in Matthew 2, 15 to 16, where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is a quotation of Hosea 11, 1. And Hosea 11, 1 is actually quoting Exodus. Now, why is Matthew quoting Hosea and not Exodus? Because he wants to bring Hosea's context into this fulfillment and not uh, not Moses's. Well, Hosea was quoting it in the context of judgment. Israel is God's firstborn son, and as, their, as his firstborn son, they will undergo discipline as a son. Jesus is his firstborn son who stands in the place of Israel and takes their punishment. is a summary of what the prophets taught. He's not quoting any one specifically, but rather he is saying this is in line with what the prophets taught about the Messiah. And what they taught about the Messiah was that he would be called a Nazarene. In order to understand this, we have to know what they called or what, uh, what they thought of the Nazarenes in John 145 we get kind of a good hint about this. Uh, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he's saying we found the Messiah. His name is Jesus, and he comes from Nazareth. And Nathanael's response is, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? This is a fulfillment of what the prophets taught about Jesus. People would look down on him; he would be scorned and rejected. To show you a bit of uh, what they thought about Nazareth, I have quoted some uh, some jokes from the Talmud. Uh, the poor Galileans and Nazarites were a lot like the Poles of the 80s and 90s; they were the butt of every joke. And so here it says, a certain Galilean once went about inquiring who has Amar? Now Amar is a, uh, is a cognate word for a few different things. So the response to this Galilean was, foolish Galilean, do you mean an ass for writing, wine to drink, wool for clothing, or a lamb for killing? Now I can't say they were very good at crafting jokes, but this gives you a sense of what they thought of the Galileans. Another one, a woman once wished to say to her friend, come, I would give you some fat to eat. But that what she actually said was, my castaway, may a lioness devour you. And I like this one. A certain woman once appeared before a judge and addressed him as follows. My master slave, I had a child and they stole you from me. And it is of such a size that if you had hanged you upon it, your feet would not have reached to the ground. Now, I've read this like 10 times. I can't make heads or tails of it. I think that's the point. (laughs) Needless to say, they did not really like the Galileans. They thought they were a little dim. Uh, There were no Jewish schools in Galilee, no, uh, no official teaching of the books of the Bible or the Talmud by the synagogue. These would be in Judea. In fact, they would say, if you want to get rich, go to Galilee. If you want to get wise, go to Judea. That's a joke about how dumb the Galileans were. You get rich playing them. We get a summary statement of his growth from 2 years old to 12 years old. In verse 40, it says, The child continued to grow and became strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, Luke is writing to a Greek audience who cared quite a bit for the physical and mental stature of a man. Luke, twice in this narrative of Jesus' childhood, assures them that he is growing in maturity both mentally and physically. Now, Jesus was growing mentally in two different ways. He was being trained. Jewish children began learning the Torah at five years old. This was an intensive study. In fact, it was seven days a week. For six days, they would learn new things, and on the Sabbath, they would review what they had learned. And this was not considered work because studying the Torah was worship. So this is one of the only things that they do not cease doing on the Sabbath day that they do the rest of the days. At 10 years old, a child would begin learning the oral law, the rabbinic traditions of Israel. And at 13, he would come under the commandments of the law. He would be personally responsible for his own, uh, well, for his own hide under the law of Moses. Uh, later on, once the Talmud was formulated, At 15, they would begin studying the Talmud, but this was not for every Jewish child. This was for those that showed promise in studying uh, spiritual things. A quick summary of growing up as a Jewish child in the first century. A child was required to be weaned by two years old if it was a healthy child. Studying the scriptures would begin at five years old. Studying rabbinic tradition at 10 years old. And he would begin an apprenticeship, either with his. I think, all right. Jesus did require or uh, did receive some special training though. We'll see this when we get to his interaction with the uh, with the rabbis at the temple, that he's able to hold his own at 12 years old, and so coming from Galilee where they don't get as prestigious an education as they would in Judea. And not being uh, the apprentice to a rabbi, they might wonder, how does this child know what he knows? And we have a good answer for this, but not in the New Testament. Jesus will allude to it, but the Old Testament gives us the answer to who taught him what he knew. It comes from Isaiah 50, verse 4, talking about the servant of Jehovah. Servant of Jehovah was one of Isaiah's titles for the coming Messiah. And he says about the Servant of Jehovah, the Lord has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. So through the prophet Isaiah, God was prophesying that he would wake up his Messiah morning by morning and train him as a disciple. Jesus was a disciple of God himself, and God took care to train his son. Now, in a Jewish family, it was the responsibility of the father to teach his son the word of God, to make sure that his child was growing in the knowledge of the Torah. And Jesus' father did exactly that. He woke him up morning by morning and taught him scripture.